friends, I'm so glad you're with us. Wherever you are, however you're showing up to this moment. Personally, I feel like I go through about 12 different emotions each day, but I'm taking it hour by hour and trying to use this moment to exercise grace towards myself and to ground deeper in my values. However you are, and however you've been, I, for one, am glad that you're here. And by here, I mean listen to this podcast. The word is resistance, where we explore what our sacred texts have to say about these intense political times of suffering and violence and repression. This podcast is a product of Showing Up for Racial Justice, which organizes white communities to take action against white supremacy. The podcast is geared towards white people and or people like me who aren't white, but who experience privilege in other ways. We all have a responsibility to do our part in dismantling systems of oppression that we benefit from. And in these days of uncertainty and horrific violence, we both need to be giving our time and energy to caring for our community's basic needs, and we can't lose sight of the need to be organizing to shift the structural injustices that are so evident in this moment. And Surge is doing just that. Please consider donating to Surge in these times. Right now, we're splitting donations with our partner organization, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, or JFREG. You can donate online at bit.ly at bit slash surge, all caps. The donation link is also linked in the transcript. My name is Grace, my pronouns are she and her, and I currently live on Lenny Lenape land in Philadelphia. I've been in quarantine in my house for about a month now, so I'm very grateful to imagine this moment as a spiritual gathering of all of us together, listening, laughing, shaking our heads in disbelief, weeping, holding one another. We'll begin today's podcast with a meditation to ground us in our togetherness. And just from the jump, I want to give y'all permission to fast forward if you need to. Honestly, some spiritual practices which usually serve me well has made me, have made me want to bang my head against a wall in quarantine. I'm like, maybe I don't want to trust the warm animal of my body, Mary Oliver. Maybe I don't want to look inward or try to tune my heart to the rhythm of the earth. What the heck ever. Maybe calming my body down feels like silencing rage that really just needs to be there. And that's okay. I felt like this more days than not in this time. And it's okay if you have too. So... Now that the permission to fast forward with no offense taken has been extended by your host for today, let's begin that meditation. Ground yourself in your body in a way that feels steadying to you. Close your eyes if that feels right. For some of us, especially in these times, focusing within is not a safe place. If that's where you're at today, instead maybe fix your gaze on something that seems beautiful in this moment, maybe a house plant or the sunlight, or fix your gaze on something you feel grateful for, a photo or maybe an, a treasured object in the room. Fill your lungs fully. Inhale, connecting to the spirit, the breath that nourishes us in an invisible way from the very space around us. You are filled with breath. 
you are filled with spirit. It is available to you in this moment. So breathe it in deeply and savor it. As you continue breathing, bring your awareness towards yourself as if you are watching yourself from outside your own body. Can you see you still in this moment, filled with spirit, bathed in light? And hey, let me tell you, you look good today. Extend gratitude towards yourself for nothing other than the simple, holy act of being in this moment. Say to yourself aloud or silently, I want you to be safe. I want you to be well. I want your life to be filled with ease. Now extend your mind's focus a little wider, holding everyone in your house or apartment building or in close proximity to you in your mind's eye. Take another deep breath of calm, dedicating it to these people. And say again to them, I want you to be safe. I want you to be well. I want your life to be filled with ease. And now picture your neighborhood. Some of the people you might know and others you might not. Is there a particular tree that you love or a dog that you see getting walked in front of your apartment every evening? They count too, the non-human creatures who find their home in your neighborhood. Say to them, I want you to be safe. I want you to be well. I want your life to be filled with ease. Now extend your awareness to your city. Complicated, beautiful, unjust, resilient, contradictory, home. Feel the waters that run through it and the earth beneath it. Say to your city, I want you to be safe. I want you to be well. I want your life to be filled with ease. Now hold the waters and the earth and the creatures of the land this country claims in your awareness. Someone you love is in a faraway place on this land. A place you went to as a child is still there too. So many people living so many different kinds of lives. Say to them, I want you to be safe. I want you to be well. I want your life to be filled with ease. And now, hold the whole earth in your awareness mysterious, spinning, and alive. Day begins for someone as someone else is falling asleep. There is water rising up through the air in this very moment, making rain to fall fresh on the trees somewhere else. There is someone who loves you on this planet in this very moment. 
Say to the whole earth, I want you to be safe. I want you to be well. I want your life to be filled with ease. And once more to yourself, I want you to be safe. I want you to be well. I want your life to be filled with ease. Amen. Togetherness, wow, what a concept. Today, it could not be more evident that as beings on this planet, we really are all in this together, as they say in High School Musical. And yet, as this reality of togetherness is laid bare, we are apart. We are isolated from one another. If you did choose to listen along, I hope the meditation modeled after a loving-kindness meditation brought you some spiritual and physical awareness of our togetherness. So, beloved, happy, question mark, Easter? Liturgically speaking, we've moved on from the Lenten season of mourning, sackcloths, and ashes, but in the world around me, it's hard to not feel like we're in a suspended Lenten mourning season. And yet, there is much to be learned in this Easter tide as well. In many of our traditions, we celebrate Easter like it's a big party. Family feasts and egg hunts and trumpets and joy. As Christians, it's our big day. We celebrate annually the choice to believe that the death-dealing forces of the world will not have the last word. Christ is alive, right? Last week, I had a sweet Easter celebration with my roommates. We channel surfed the Facebook live streams of various churches we love, We hunted for Easter baskets in our house and shared a meal. It was a pause in the ever-present feeling of despair and grief that normally hangs over us. And these pauses are important. My goodness, joy and gratitude and humor are so important in these times. But this Easter didn't come close to reaching the full-on joyful celebration that I can remember in years past. In this season of the podcast, Between Easter and Pentecost, we're focusing on who we are meant to be to each other in these times, what we see in scripture and how we see God moving in the world today. And I think this week's gospel reading has a lot to teach us about this topic. There was definitely no champagne brunch after the resurrection, and even as I say that out loud, I feel extremely Episcopalian. I wonder if others do that. And in the days after the resurrection, they shared food, sure, and they rejoiced when they saw Jesus alive, but not this party-like joy and ease that we come to associate with the Eastertide in Middle America 2020. For them, it's not like the world is any easier than it was before Jesus' death. Rome is still breathing down their necks. The disciples are still responsible for a massive-scale organizing project. Jesus is back. And there is deep promises of hope in that. But the oppressive systems of the world still exist. There is still much work for them to do to build up the new world, to learn to be an Easter people, 
and to learn how to be together. In this week's gospel, we're looking at John's resurrection story in chapter 20, for those of you following along at home. In the preceding verses, the disciples find the tomb empty, Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene, and she ran and told the others about this mysterious and shocking appearance. This is where our story picks up. Jesus, after sending Mary ahead of him to tell the disciples that he's back, he approaches the house where he knows they're staying. The doors are locked because they are afraid. Inside, I can imagine them pacing, frantically strategizing and re-strategizing, wondering if it could possibly true that he's back, maybe lying on the ground with their hearts racing after many nights of no sleep. And Jesus, often one for a surprise entrance, just walks right into the middle of the fray in that house and stands there. He shows them his wounded body, his hands pierced by the nails, and his side slashed by the sword. And it is then that they know him. Their beloved leader is back. But before they even have a minute to take a breath, a minute to high-five and breathe a sigh of relief, to close all the tabs on their computers because, hey, Jesus is back and he'll figure this mess out for us. Jesus says to them, hey, y'all, it is me, but I'm sending you all out there. You're going to do what I was doing now. Say what? I can imagine the disciples sinking horror. You're sending us back out there, out of the state just killed you? Where there are massive crowds of vulnerable people who who you agitated into a revolutionary spirit, who are now confused, pissed, or both? That's on us now? Much less, Jesus has literally come back to life from the dead, so shouldn't he be the one to shoulder the lion's share of the work that needs to be done to get this campaign back on track? I mean, a guy who can't be killed, even by the most powerful empire on earth, is a pretty strong choice for a movement leader, right? But that's not to be. Instead, Jesus breathes on them, (laughs) giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit, and recalling a time when God breathed life into creation in Genesis a long time ago. He tells them that they are the ones who will go back out into the world and work against the powers of sin and death. He commissions them, and he believes in them. But Thomas, one of the disciples, wasn't with them when all this went down. So when the others tell him about it, he calls BS. I can imagine him saying, you want me to go back out into that world and keep up our mission? You want me to go risk my life again for this whole thing? Yeah, Jesus is going to have to tell that to my face if he really is back, like you say. A week passes, and then Jesus does appear to him, finally. And, of course, Thomas does come to believe. I can't imagine the moment that Jesus appeared to him. Jesus giving him a sly grin and Thomas throwing up his hands and saying, seriously, and the two of them embracing. Thomas putting his boots back on and then Jesus giving him a hard time for being the last to get with the program. Then Thomas responding, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the plan? Oh, poor Thomas, infamously dubbed Doubting Thomas for centuries to come. Don't be a Doubting Thomas, they tell us. You don't have to see God to believe in God, they tell us. But I know I'm not the only one out there who relates to Thomas's doubts. We should probably call him good question asker Thomas or hashtag relatable Thomas. 
Of course, I mean it's natural to have existential-level doubts about the work of God doing things we cannot see, but we've all heard that sermon already. I think there are plenty of other reasons why Thomas's reaction is relatable, especially in this moment of pandemic and crisis. First, I can just hear the tiredness in Thomas's voice. After an impossibly intense week, where they staged multiple actions against Rome in a city flooded with visitors and Jesus' followers during Passover, culminating in the torturous death of their leader and public shaming of their movement, maybe some part of Thomas really did just want it to be over. Maybe some part of him wanted to rest from the intensity of it all. Maybe he said those words, I will not believe until... Because he really just needed a break from being in a role where he had to believe so intently all the time. He was a disciple, right? It was his job to believe in this movement. Now, Jesus Jesus being raised from the dead would not have been the first time that these disciples saw someone resurrected. Jesus had done it before. And so it's hard for me to imagine that they found death-to-life resurrection that difficult to fathom. Given that reality in his insistence that he cannot, will not believe it to be so, I hear in Thomas's voice a burnt-out leader, maybe even edging into cynicism. Secondly to me, Thomas is a relatable character in this moment because he models self-doubt, and I think some of this self-doubt comes from a trauma response. Of course everyone in the story is tired, but they've also witnessed horrific violence, been scapegoated by the state, and are on the run from the authorities. They've been living on the road for months, throwing themselves into the lives of the poor and oppressed, their people, telling these folks that there is reason to hope against all odds. Telling them, these people living under the boot of empire, to risk something for this movement. There's a lot of responsibility riding on this discipleship community. So when Jesus comes back and tells the disciples that things are in fact not slowing down, but are rather ramping up, I can imagine Thomas's little brain just short-circuiting. Trauma, if unmetabolized, floods our bodies with emotional responses, where our old systems of survival take over. My therapist asked me last week, does your response to this crisis remind you in any way of other crises that you have had to respond to? Now, we don't know much of Thomas's backstory, but I can imagine that after seeing what he's seen and doing what he's done, He's reverting to some old survival strategies in this moment. He's activated. And when he's told that the work will continue, his response to me seems less of a doubt in the resurrected Christ himself and more, perhaps, a doubt in his own capacity to keep the gospel message on the move. Which leads me to the third reason I think Thomas is relatable in these times, which is that he demands embodiment. I have learned to not always trust everything my anxiety brain or my trauma brain tells me. So much of our psyches have been bruised and short-circuited and rewired in ways that don't always serve us as adults. These days, so much is taking me out of my body. Constant scrolling on my phone, just complete overwhelm at the scare of loss and impacts of violent systems, the indifference, fear for my family. It's so much to take in that my propensity to disassociate and numb out have been extremely activated. 
Sometimes I forget I have a body until it's screaming at me, eat, or you're stressed, or you're exhausted. We live in a world that so privileges the knowledge of the brain over the wisdom of the body. And yet, when our thoughts are spinning out wildly, it is our bodies that can steady us. When Thomas demands a physical encounter, an embodied encounter in order to believe, I think he's asking for help and overriding his thoughts and trauma and fears that are spinning him out towards disbelief in himself, his community, and their mission. Oh, Thomas, the doubter, the question asker, and the tired, traumatized disciples, we are with you in this. We know maybe a little bit about what this feels like. All of these are reasons that Thomas himself as an individual is hashtag relatable, especially in this COVID-19 time, but I think the deeper lessons of transformation come from his community's response to him, who his friends are to him in his distress. His friends hold him when he can't hold himself. They tell tell him about what they have seen and encountered, about how the mission will continue, and how they were gifted the Spirit by Jesus to keep up the work in a new way, but he cannot bring himself to that place of readiness yet. He doubts himself and them and their leader right to their faces. And yet, when Jesus returns a week later, Thomas is still with them in the house. They didn't kick him out or tell him that the discipleship group was for believers only or that he should work harder. Apparently, he stayed in the house with them for a week anyway. I hope he got some rest. I hope he got to lean into the collective care of his comrades. When he couldn't believe, they believed for him without demonizing him or ostracizing him. May we, too, understand cycles of rest and work and hope and despair in these times. We can only hold those things together in community. We cannot expect one person to be a fount of energy or hope all the time. And we see Jesus holding these things for him too. Jesus doesn't return for a whole week. I like to imagine that he was giving Thomas space to rest and recover before he posed the question to him again, are you ready to jump back on this freedom road? And again, if we take this idea of belief out of the context of belief in Jesus himself, but rather belief in their movement and their collective ongoing work together that was meant to continue, then I see Jesus's chastise of Thomas when he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe not as a scolding, but as a modeling of this kind of community care. It shouldn't take just seeing one man back from the dead to believe in this kind of hope. Those who have not yet seen the world we are building up, but who believe in it and still work for it, those are the ones with the apocalyptic, that is, uncovered faith in their communities and our work together. May we, too, build accountable relationships with our dear ones, to know when to hold them and also know when to push them to grow and believe in themselves. And finally, in this intimate space between Thomas and Jesus, these two bodies encountering each other, I see the magic of co-regulation at play. 
As mammals, humans can regulate one another's nervous systems through physical touch, called co-regulation. When we are touching the body of someone we feel safe with and love, our sympathetic nervous systems can sync up in a way that is mutually soothing. Jesus offers his wounded body to soothe his traumatically activated friend. This kind of healing, safe physical intimacy is already a privilege for so many reasons and is only heightened in these times of physical distances. I'm getting dangerously close to the let Jesus be your boyfriend spiel that I got from conservative youth group leaders in high school, but the thought of these movement leaders co-regulating their traumatized nervous systems together in community, oh, y'all, that's the kind of resilience we need to win. May we, too, learn to trust our wise bodies and ourselves and hope unseen and trust that when we cannot trust at all, someone else is believing and trusting in our honor. The risen Christ is a traumatized, disabled body, y'all. All gratitude to the brilliant disability justice theologians who have taught me this. What a Christ for these times. And the disciples are tired, also traumatized, fearful people who doubt themselves and doubt the truth of the justice movement. What a story for these times indeed. This week, for your action, I invite you into a Thomas practice. Tell someone who is doubting their own power or the power of the movement that you're not going to fix it, but you'll hold it for them this week. Then do it. Light a candle or write them a letter or pray for that, holding their hope. Or maybe you're that person who needs holding. Ask someone to do it for you. Ask someone to hope for you. Or you could read about co-regulation and work towards building relationships of physical and emotional trust, which, by the way, does not mean romantic, to hold one another in these times. Or you could map your relationships in your life using a pod structure from transformative justice work and notice which ones are the people who you trust to push you and hold you in crisis. Work to strengthen these relationships. We must be holding one another in these times. This is all a lot, y'all. I continue to give you permission to skip the meditations. I give you permission to be just really angry. I give you permission to doubt and fall apart. Like concentric circles, we are holding it down for each other in small, intimate ways and in great, grand ways. Together. Thanks for listening along, y'all. Give us some love on our Facebook page or SoundCloud or Spotify situation. We love hearing from you. Big thanks to the Freeney Harding family for giving us permission to use this song, sung in a movement choir practice, written by Dr. Harding himself. And thanks to our sound editor this week, Max. You're great. Next week, look out in the third week of Easter for the illustrious Nicola Torbett, who will bring us a good word into our ears 
as we continue to explore what this time has to teach us about how to be with one another amidst the COVID-19 crisis. Thanks again for joining us. Peace to me. Peace to you. Peace to us. Be well, y'all.